everybody to another episode of the Fearless Mums Club podcast. I'm Christine Drummond, your host, and I have a cracker of an episode lined up for you today. I have a, a really awesome friend of mine who I've known for a few years now. I absolutely adore her. She's a mentor. She's a guide. And I'm going to share a little bit from her website um, because I don't... I really want to get um, the listeners to understand what it is that you do, Gillian, because it's so hard to describe what you do because you're just such an incredible woman, so spiritual, so aligned with who you are. And I draw so much strength on your courage and the way that you hold yourself. And I'm just so thrilled that you're here today. But this is off um, off Gillian's uh, website. I just want to read a little bit on here. So she's dubbed as Australia's number one identity consultant and nonverbal communication trainer. Gillian has decoded more than six and a half thousand faces. Yes, you heard me right. She's decoded faces. So whenever you meet her, just make sure you're smiling and you look nice. <laughs> she, um, she's decoded two and a half thousand bodies and over 500 tattoos, revealing personality traits, hidden skills, subconscious habits, redundant pat- patterns and innate talents. She's a qualified psychosomatic, I love that word, psychosomatic. Um, She does NLP, hypnosis, and she's an expert on all things body language. She's actually featured in numerous um, web TV shows and she's wowed audiences around the country with her impressive teachings and live demonstrations on facial posture, tattoo, and body decoding. Now, you know, when I first heard Gillian speak, she she actually did a live demonstration at this beautiful lunch we invited her to, and she could read people's faces. She did a demonstration, and it was just so fascinating. I've been in love with this woman ever since. So I'm a massive fan, Gillian, but I'd love you to share with the listeners, who is Gillian Madigan? Where have you come from, girlfriend? <laughs> um, well, actually, you probably could see from my colour, I'm not Australian. I was born in India, um, come... Um, my parents are Anglo-Indian for three generations, so um, a little bit pale. Um, we moved to New Guinea and then my parents divorced and we moved from beautiful tropical, you know, seaside New Guinea where you're swimming in the coral reefs to Mount Isa in northwest Queensland. And I was definitely a fish drowning in the dry. Like it was... We stepped off the plane, it was about six degrees and the air just sucked every bit of moisture out of you. So I just went, I was horrified. I spoke English and um, when I got to school, they spoke a different kind of English. Now, if anybody knows Western Queensland, there is so much language that doesn't make sense if you... uh, didn't grow up there so there was lots of missing you know i kept missing the point and um so that made me really become aware of people's body language and how they were doing things how they were communicating connecting because i wanted to fit in i really wanted to fit in and um being indian no one knew what an indian was they thought you know and um I had to, at seven, I had to tell them it was the wrong continent. You know, even <laughs> I knew it was the wrong continent. Um, thank God for the, the Pakistani cricket team when they came to Australia because then everybody realised where India was, even though Pakistan wasn't part of India at the time. <laughs> so there's all these identity challenges that when I was growing up and I gained these skills to watch people and, 
and I also taught myself how to become invisible, how to, to stay out of trouble and become invisible. So it's a real blending in and fading away. So when, once I became a teenager, I really didn't have an identity. So you can see why I love identity work and why I love nonverbal communication because that has actually been my journey. And um, I did arts at uni for a little while, was too young, didn't have enough experience, came back, did all these weird kind of jobs um, from working on a station, riding motorbikes, chasing stupid sheep around and working in the shearing sheds. And um, I was an aircraft refueler, driving truck. I was one of two in the whole of Australia. Um, I learned to become a man, a woman, and a man at the same time. I was dressed up as a man to make it okay to work with people. They were all men. <laughs> it was a male environment. Um, and also was a florist and I worked in a haberdashery and I was a picture framer. And all four of those jobs, sometimes I was doing in the same week. So there was lots of chopping and changing of identities. As you can see, there's a theme. <laughs> um, and then I got married. Now, how freaky is this? I don't know if anybody else has a story like this. I was driving my refueling truck and I saw this guy. I was already going out with someone three years. It was fading away into nothing. I saw this guy on the tarmac and uh, this thought just zipped through my head. I'm going to marry that man. And I went, are you nuts? You don't even know who that person is. Like, you know, just weird shit like that, right? Um, seven months later, I found out I was pregnant. I'd finished that relationship, started that relationship, moved to Melbourne, lived in Melbourne, had my baby. Husband really hated living in Melbourne again and can't, we came back to Manizer and got married. And then six months later, he had a fatal accident and he passed away, but over a long period of time, like three months but he never regained consciousness. So that was my second death journey. I had my boyfriend previous to that, his brother committed suicide. So that was like this, another thread in my life of death. So it, it'll turn up again further on. So I had a two and a half year old and no partner, but, um, he was an amazing man, lived life really to the fullest. And we lived a very volatile relationship. It was fiery all the time, um, but it was fire and then quiet and fire and quiet. So, um, and then I met my partner that I have now. We've been together for 26 years. <laughs> Did get married this time. Um, <laughs> once was enough. Um, and... I moved to the Gold Coast. So I've been living on the Gold Coast for 26 years. And that was this amazing period in my life. I went back to India, hadn't been back to India. And I went with my dad and I learned a lot about who he was. I didn't speak Hindi and he had 6% eyesight. So it was the mute leading the blind around India. So he'd speak and I would see. We were photographing my grandfather's paintings all around India. He was a very talented man. 
And um, so that gave me this insight into my father that I'd never seen before. And he was also the developer of psychosomatic therapy. And when he showed me this, I realized that I'd actually been reading people unconsciously all my life. So there's this journey that's been you know, floating around all these little threads that have all started to come together when I came to the Gold Coast. So I trained in psychosomatic therapy and clinical hypnosis and NLP and Reiki and spiritual stuff and anything I could get my hands on that would help me um, understand identity and understand communication when there was no words. So for me, I love human beings. I love the way they interact. I love their stupidness, their ignorance, their anything, the dark and the light. I find it absolutely stimulating. <laughs> so um, those numbers on my website are doubled actually since I put those ones up. I should really have them clicking over. <laughs> and so for me, I, I love to look at people and go, okay, what's your story? Because what's on your face right on the surface is not what your story is. Um, how you made your body, how you made your face is your journey from womb to now. And how you've created yourself can impact on your future. So, because this is all the past. This is all being created over time and in the past. So when I look at someone, I can see their life. I can see their possibilities and it's not psychic. <laughs> it's very analytical and very teachable. So now that I've taken a breath, Christine, <laughs> you want to answer the question? Oh. No, I don't want to. I just wanted you to talk. About <laughs> I, 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 just... I probably should continue. I probably, I probably should say um, my daughter, who was two and a half, is now going to be 30 this year. And she has three children of her own, three under five. So I'm a grandmother. And I am my youngest, I only have two, um, who's just who's going to be 19 this year, just moved out of home. So my partner and I are having a relationship for the first time without children. We've, in 26 years, is never, there's always been a child involved. So, yeah. Thanks, COVID, because it's been fantastic. We've been really learning a lot about ourselves and how comfortable we are with each other, which is fantastic. I thought I was a bit scared, actually. <laughs> Would I like him? And that's only natural, isn't it? Like, so I've seen so many people get to that um, retirement age and then that's when they're kind of together all the time. And, um, yeah, it, it breaks people up. Or it can go the other way and deepen the relationship for sure. Um, but Gillian, I just find your your journey, your life um, just so fascinating. And, and that's why I think you're so good at what you do because you've got so much life experience. And we're going to get into a little bit about, you know, some of the um, things that you're doing now online and some of the workshops and things that people can plug into and the, and the death ceremonies. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But just, um, just getting back to being a mum, because honestly, it's one of the most challenging, but also one of the most rewarding, um, you know, positions you can be in, you know. And um, for me, in a previous relationship, we tried for seven years to have kids. And I was like, why is it so hard to have these bloody little miracles, you know? And they are miracles, you know. 
And um, my ex-husband and I, we just, we just couldn't do it. We just could not, you know, have these children. When I met Tom, it was about four to six months in the relationship and bang, you know, it was just, everything just aligned, I guess. So for me, um, being a mom, I do not take it lightly. I, I feel like it's an honour and, and um, you know, and I know that you feel the same and we're leaving a legacy for these children, but you also have to be your own person as well. But what I would love to know is, What's the worst thing you've ever done as a mum? Like, can you think of something that you've done? What's it? You know, worst things are really interesting. They're so subjective um, because worst things in whose eyes? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've had a lot of interesting answers to this one. We've had people <laughs> say, you know what, the worst thing I've ever done is I've, I didn't love myself first. We've had other people say, yep, I dropped my baby um, out the back of the car. We've had like, we've had all different kind of interesting answers. So I'm, I'm looking forward to yours. Oh, there's, there's these moments that I have, you know, I'm, I've never really, really wanted children. I've never really, there's been two moments in my life where I had to have them and I had them. But in between, there was no... Like I, I want children. I know I never really, the whole process of it, I'm, it's almost like they chose me and I'm doing a job and I've always, and I sat with that and gone, gee, there's all these women around me who just love that. They would do anything for their children, anything whatsoever. And I remember my sister saying to me, I'd die for my children. And I just looked at her and I went, I wouldn't. And she she, she was horrified and I, it will horrify some of the, the audience here as well. But in, in, my, in my journey, I couldn't die for my children because there's other people that are important as well. So if I died for one child, what would happen to the other? What would happen to my partner? What would happen to the other people in my community? So for me, that was, no, I couldn't do that. It, it's okay. It's okay for other people. But that is not something I, and being, owning up to that was really hard. Like to actually say it out loud was really hard because it went around in my head a lot. I wouldn't die for my children. And I could hear all these people, oh, I'd do anything for them. I would, I would die for them. And I just went, mm, maybe that's probably, you know, there's many times where I had my hands around my children's necks in my head, you know, that I just want to throttle you. <laughs> You know, I didn't ever do it, but um, gee, yeah, we come close. I don't know how many other people will line up to that, but I was definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could put you in chains. I could chain you to the bed very easily in my head. <laughs> Just give me some peace. Um, yeah, and, and really it's those little moments where I want something for myself, but I can't have it because it's important that I'm, you know, available to that child or that young person or the adult child that I have, the adult children that I have. So sometimes I have to take that step back and go, this is momentary. I'm allowed to step back momentarily, not always. So that, <clears throat> there's another one. I am grateful I live on the Gold Coast and my daughter and my grandchildren live at Phillip Island because my daughter and I's relationship 
flourishes because we're apart. Because those moments she can reach out to me and I'm available. If I was there all the time, I don't think we would have that, that relationship. So, yes, that's a, another hard one. I love that. And I love that you're so open and honest about it. And there's going to be so many listeners that resonate with that, um, honestly. And, yeah, I love that you've gone there. And it's and hopefully it opens up, um, you know, some, some different thoughts and a different perceptive um, for a lot of the mums out there, you know. And we all know that there's not just one way to parent. And we all know those mums that dedicate their entire lives to being a mum. They were just born to be a mum, you know. They've got those maternal instincts it's definitely not us, Gillian, but we do our best with what we've got. Uh, and I think I'm the same as you. I don't know if I would die for my kids either. Like I'm definitely here to teach them good morals and values and protect them as best that I can and keep them safe. And, you know, hopefully they've got manners and make, make you know, the right decisions along the way. Um, but it's their journey. We don't own anybody. We don't even own our kids. You know, you can give them the best advice, the best, you know, upbringing. But they're, you know, when they get to those sort of early late teens and early adulthood, they're going to make their own decisions. And sometimes they're going to make the wrong one. Um, doesn't matter how perfect you were as a parent. So I, I love that you've actually brought that up and, and triggered a, a new discussion for us to have. Um, what's the best thing you love about being a mum then? What do, you, what do you love most about being a mum? When I, when I see my kids really struggle and then step out, and learn something from it and grow. It's just, it's like, yes. (laughs) You know, it's it's almost like watching a a small plant, you know, pushing its way out of the soil and you can see the leaves and you want to go and push the soil away, but you know that they build strength in that. And every time I step back, so I'm one of these mothers who said, you know, when my children fell over or hurt themselves, they go, is there blood? Is the bone sticking out? And and they go, no. And I said, will a kiss do? Yes. And I go, okay. So, <laughs> so I don't go, I'm not one of these ones who will run up and go, oh, you okay? Oh, you okay? I go, no. Yeah, is there blood? Yep. <laughs> is the bone sticking out and whatever or dislocated? And then I remember my, my youngest coming up to me, she'd bitten her tongue and she goes, can you kiss it better? And I said, I'm not kissing your tongue better. <laughs> I said, I'll do this. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, we, we've got the magic kisses in our house as well. It's amazing how quickly these magic kisses work. Let me tell you on our three-year-old son, you know, <laughs> give him a magic kiss and he's off and running. Yep. The yeah. tears are finished. And I'm like, yeah, it's magic kiss. They're, they're- <laughs> Um, and then I, I hear his sister do it for him as well. Oh, do you want me to give you? And then it saves me having to do it all the time. Um, and it teaches sorry, them to be be able yes. to receive as well. You know, yes. from other, others. It's not yeah. just on you all the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't have to be mum's magic kiss. Any magic kiss, as long as you use that term, magic kiss, he knows <laughs> that it's going to work. But I'm I'm very much like you. Unless there's blood, yeah, up you get. Keep going. Um, and, and the kids know, do not come in my office door if that's closed, unless there's blood. Mum's <laughs> in here, she's working, you know, unless exactly there's a bone sticking out or there's blood coming, you know, you stay out there till I'm finished. So I totally get that as well. There's, um, another, there's another little door thing 
Yep. In our house, our bedroom door was open all the time. But if the bedroom door was closed, the house had to be burning down. Do not come near the door if the bedroom door was closed. And that rule actually worked. It was very, very good. It wasn't very often that the door was closed and they were running around the house because sometimes we just wanted to have conversations that weren't around her. It wasn't just about having extracurricular activity going on. It was, <laughs> I was say, is that what you call it these days? A conversation? <laughs> <laughs> A body language conversation? <laughs> <Me>? <laughs> but there were so you know, some of these deep and meaningful conversations about um, like my husband going, Honey, you can't you can't say inappropriate stuff like that to your children. You know, we have two girls and go and you don't say that in front of them. You have to go out and, and just go Nah, that's that's just nah. <laughs> Especially with teenage girls, just don't go there. <laughs> and and the other thing was, you know, you have to go there. You know, you're the dad. You're showing. So having those conversations away from them when they weren't around. So it wasn't dad was a bad person or he was a dumbass or you know whatever. Yep. It was just those kind of, and he could have a conversation with me about their emotional state. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on with it? <laughs> and uh, how do I deal with this? So those those kinds of conversations, and yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, we we do close our bedroom door, but it's more to keep the noise out. <laughs> Then, uh, then extracurricular things going on. <laughs> <laughs> My partner works away, so come on. When he's home, we get busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> so what's the greatest lesson or piece of advice that someone's given you that's helped you um, in your role of motherhood? I, I will give you a bit of scary advice that I was given when my daughter was, um, she was a about three or four, I said, this lady turned around she goes, you know, later on in life, you'll understand why some animals eat their young. And I was like horrified when she gave me this piece of advice. And five years later, I just, I so understood what she was talking about. And that piece of advice sat in my back of my mind going, because she'd also said that you'll love them all the time, but you don't have to like them, you know? And it's okay to say that you don't like them and they don't like you. And I just went, oh, that's so true. You know, these are those moments where you just happily... <laughs> but in those moments to be truthful and honest and go, I don't like you. I don't like your behavior. I don't like what's going on for you right now. Do you need some time to go and sit with you? Because I need some time to go and sit over there, you know, and love always happens in our house. You know, love is consistent and continuous. Like is optional. And you cannot like me. I cannot like you, but you need to get over it after a little while because eventually you'll need food and all sorts of other things and <laughs> be taken places. And, and I don't need the apology. It's okay, to, it's okay to feel that way unless you hurt or damage with intent. Then 
then there needs to be an apology. So, I love that. And I love that you mentioned that the love is constant because it's so important that no matter how you're feeling or how angry or upset or disappointed you are, that child, I feel, needs to feel loved and know that, um, you know, that you, you will love them no matter what. You know, it's that non-judgmental, I guess, kind of love that, you know, we're going to make mistakes along the way. You're not always going to get it right. Um, but you're right. It's the it's the behaviour and, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it, it's the I don't like. I think I said it to my three year old son yesterday. Actually, I just don't like you right now. You are not doing anything. Like it was just insane. He actually spent. I had to put him in his room all day from ten a.m. to three p.m. Like <laughs> that's where he had his lunch. That's where he had, <laughs> you know. And um, and he was like, "Mom, I'm ready to be a good boy now." And I'm like, "Okay, that's great." bring him out and just straight back to the same same behavior pattern so yeah i don't know if you got any advice for me around that <laughs> well interestingly both my children are absolutely polar opposites to each other so my eldest daughter loved her room she'd love just you know go to sleep straight after a tantrum no worries whatsoever um my other daughter is highly social and she doesn't like to be away from everyone so i have to find ways to get them to reset. So my daughter, eldest daughter, she actually, before we had a spare room, we used to live in a smaller house. She didn't have to go and sit in the bathroom. There was nothing in the bathroom. I said, you can't sleep because I want you to think about what you've actually gone, that process that you've gone through and how you've got to this place. And if you go to your bed and you go to sleep, she's just doing a reset. She's actually not considering what was going on. So she'd just go to sleep, wake up and like there's nothing, nothing's happened. It would just like wipe everything. So for her, the bathroom and then the spare room, which had nothing in it later on when we moved. And my youngest, she'd have to go to a room. She hated it. But it would give them that opportunity to consider what was going on. And, I, and then they'd go, I'm ready to come out. And I go, well, what did you learn? You know, what was, what what came to you in that time? And they would give me that feedback and I go, well, what, it, you know, where are you going to go from here? And it may turn up again, but it would be at a different level. It would be at a different experience and the same process. Like my, my girls had this really interesting thing. They would step over the boundary just before school holidays and end up grounded over the school holidays totally weird right <laughs> absolute madness but you know they knew what the consequence they knew where the boundary was they knew the consequences of stepping over that boundary and that my boundaries were weren't as bad as some others but they were very strong compared to some others so um i had a lot of children coming to me for advice because the boundaries that existed in our house and the thing, the attitude that my daughter had when she went out, both of them, you know, they, their, their friends would come to come to me for parental advice rather than their parents because their parents weren't accessible, which is sad. Sad. Sad, especially teenagers. <laughs> oh. Yeah. When you have to take, when you take one of your daughter's friends to the family clinic 
because they're Catholic and, um, you know, very strict and mum's overseas and dad need not know. Had, you know, get in the car, let's go. Got your own Medicare card in, you go, I can't come with you. You know, that, but that they come to me for that. So, you know, those rules that I put in place that were a little bit stricter than other people, long-term make a difference. And when your 19-year-old comes home and says to you, Mum, I'm glad you were strict with me and I'm glad, you know, the rules were in place, you know, it takes a long time, though. That was eight years <laughs> to wait for that. <laughs> Sometimes you don't get it at all. And it's like, oh, God, all that struggle was worthwhile. <laughs> I love that. And you know what? My mom, like I'm turning 40 this year and it was just in the last six months that she admitted that she was too tough on me. And I'm like, do you think? Like, <laughs> but it was nice to actually finally hear her say it and, and admit it because, yeah, she, she did um, yeah, come down very hard. So, and I never went to her, you know, never. She was definitely one that really judged everything that I did and always made me feel bad if I um, made the wrong decision. Mum, if you're listening to this podcast, I love you and I love the relationship we've got now. We've, we're over this. We've both grown from it. Um, but, yeah, she was really, really strict and was so frustrating, you know, because it wasn't like we were bad kids. It was like, we, you know, you know, putting two to three hour earlier curfews on me than what my friends were having. It was just, it was devastating for me at the time. But, anyway, I'm glad that she did because, you know, it's a lesson in everything. And I love um, the way that you shared that story as well. And I know there's so many other parents out there that are going to be able to relate to that. But it's about finding what works for you and your family as well. And, um, you know, really tapping in what feels right for you as a mum, because there's so many ways to parent, you know. So let's move on to embarrassing moments. Have you ever had an embarrassing moment? Have you embarrassed your kids or have you ever been embarrassed by your kids? When both my kids were farty kids from birth, <laughs> very farty kids. And they, they sounded like adult farts. Let me tell you, it is gross when you're in the supermarket and you can, your child lets go. And the next thing you know, you know, people are looking around at you, especially when they're really bad, like stitchful. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I, th I know there's going to be so many mums that can relate to that. <laughs> um, I, I now um, pay back. Payback is wonderful. Um, dancing in the supermarket, especially in the supermarket that your daughter works in. <laughs> and not just little dancing, not just, you know really dancing with the trolleys and the security cameras going and all that type of stuff, you know, so you really, they put music on, what, what the heck? Um, I thought I would embarrass, you probably know this story. Um, a couple of years ago, I was part of the uh, Don Giovanni uh, opera and was naked on stage for eight performances. Well, my daughter brought her and her couple of her friends to the dress rehearsal and I, I, I wasn't too sure about, you know, letting them come. And I thought, they're just human bodies. And um, 
they were just stoked. I thought they might be embarrassed, but they were absolutely stoked to be able to see people from 18 to 79 in all their different shapes and sizes. And uh, they said it was amazing. It was amazing. I can't believe you did that. That's just astounding. <laughs> you know, so from, from trepidation of being embarrassed because your child is in the audience and their friends are in the audience, but then to hear that on the other side is just, it was really so worth it. And gosh, what an empowering story and, a, and an experience. I didn't know that story, but I love it. <laughs> Definitely totally something naked. I'd be up for. Totally naked with 70 other women on stage. It was fantastic. So empowering. It was, it was astounding. That's not the only thing I've done, though, but there's, there's other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine. <laughs> you need a longer podcast. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Okay. So moving along to the next question. Um, do you have a philosophy around motherhood or do you have any traditions that you instill in your household? Um, we only have one tradition. That's the Easter egg hunt. <laughs> and my, when my daughter turned 18, that was her last one. I said, that was it. <laughs> and my, my eldest daughter is doing Easter egg hunts with her grandchildren. So that's really the only tradition that we have. But um, there is a, a belief system that I have that our children choose us. And that's why I agree with you. We don't own them. We don't own our children. And in that moment of choosing us, they live a fated life from conception to adult and then they have an opportunity to look back at their fated life and decide what they'd like to carry forward into their destiny and then it's up to them to create that destiny so for me that philosophy actually didn't come into being until i was almost 30. you know i had an awareness at 28 when my husband passed and, but I didn't really, it didn't really coalesce that I could choose something until I was 30. And I do say that to my girls. I said, you're 18 now, you, you choose your destiny. You choose how you want to live your life. Um, I've given you all the tools I can and I will give you support if you reach out to me. So that's one of the, the processes. They have to actually reach out to me because I found with my older girl that I was interfering in her adult life. And she, she lives with bipolar. So at 13, I had an inkling that something was going on, but the doctor said that until she had an episode, they couldn't actually qualify what she was going through because she was a teenager. And um, at 19, she got diagnosed. She had a massive breakdown and there was suicide and all sorts of dramas that went around that process. But now I understand those strict things I had in place and behaviours that I would put up with or not put up with, um, how they actually came to fruition, how important they were in her process of stepping into looking after herself as an adult because at night at <clears throat> 21 i think she was almost 21 and she turned around to me one day and she said to me 
why do you keep watching me? And I said, well, if you choose to take your life, that's going to impact everyone in the family. It's not just going to impact you as a death, but the ripple effect, and I still have to look after your sister because there was only, she was 20, so she would have been nine. So, you know, there's this nine-year-old that I still have to be available for and that's why I'm watching you. I'm watching you so I can manage what's going on. And, you know, being a control freak, as you would know, <laughs> knowing what's going on so you can deal with things as they happen or before they happen or put things in place if they happen so that, you know, it mitigates some of the ripple effect. And she says, well, if you keep watching me, how can I, do, how can I get better? And I went, okay, I have to make a decision. Now, this is one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. And it was now in her court. If she chose to die, she chose to die. That was, I couldn't do, I couldn't run interference for that anymore because I was taking her power away. So now when she needs help, she reaches out to me. I've said to her, okay, I'll let go. But if you want help, you have to reach out because I can't reach you. You've told me not to. So I'm going to sit back. And that's a really, that was a really big lesson. Like, <laughs> very, very hard to do. It was very hard to do. And even now it makes me feel like it's still prickly in the background. But really, it's her life. She's going to be 30, you know. It's her life. And she deals with um, her, the situation of her bipolar. is actually, it's not her bipolar, she lives with bipolar. Um, it makes her great at her, her job. When she's employed, they love her because she's just like driven for a set amount of time and she now knows that she has to take time off afterwards. So she's learned to manage it for herself. But um, that those things that I put in place early about, you know, sleep and recognising herself and acknowledgement of what's going on and not hiding from it, and letting her recover, you know, stepping back a little bit, <laughs> you know, that plant coming up through the soil, that's or getting beaten around by the environment. I think that actually gave her resilience that she has now. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. It, it really does. And you raise such a good point there because I know a lot of parents and a lot of mums are going through that where they're noticing tendencies like um, signs of suicide and things like that, but they they tend to smother. And I think that um, it it doesn't empower that that child or that young adult like you've done with your daughter, where you've gone, you know, you've had the conversation around it. You're like, okay, I am going to let go. You know, this you've got the reins now. And that's, that's giving her, as you said, the resilience and the power to really go and be, you know, who she wants to be. And if she does decide to go down the path of taking her own life, then, you know, that's her decision. And you, you kind of, like, you can't carry that guilt on then, you know what I mean? Which is, I've seen that just, you know, kill people, basically, the guilt that they carry 
um, from this. So I love that you brought that up and, and shared how you dealt with that situation because I think that's going to help a lot of women out there that listen to this that are going through a similar circumstance as well. One of the things that I really learned, you know, I have a therapeutic background and I've, I've learned because my husband lives with um, depression and he had clinical depression for seven years, really early in our relationship. And um, as a therapist, I thought I could help him. And eventually I realised that I couldn't and he actually needed. And I had to draw that line in the sand and go, I can't help you. You don't listen to me. You know what training I have. So you have to go and assist yourself outside. You need to do it. Other hours, our relationship is done. And I had to draw that line in the sand for myself and the child and the children as well, because it was starting to infect the relationship. And the same thing um, with suicide. If you become guilt driven or all those things you can destroy your family because you're so focused on what you couldn't have done anything about and everyone else is left behind lost without any you know any direction or support which can unravel a family completely because the focus is over with a person that's now deceased and I have this thing about death that grief is love with nowhere to go. So we go through this process where it wanders around. You can't put your love where it used to go, but there, there's still other people in your life that will thrive when you love yourself because then that reflection feeds them and that that sparks their love for themselves within themselves and and in their environment but when you take it away and and give it to you know try and shove it into death or the person that's gone all these you yourself lack but everyone else does too yeah i love that and i love how you've and we're going to might as well talk about this now because you do um, you changed the way that I saw death. You know, you got me to realise that it's a rite of passage and we don't lose anybody, you know. It, we're all just energy and it's just that person's rite of passage into the next, you know, realm or um, energy sphere or whatever you want to call it, you know. So for me, the listeners know that my dad's not well and, you know, he's got dementia and you were the first person that said, Christine, you're actually going to lose your dad twice so you need to start the grieving process now and that allowed me to really go um, have the most beautiful moments and memories and conversations with my dad before we lost him, like mentally, you know what I mean? So um, that was such a massive process and a, a massive um, thing for me to go through in, in being comfortable with being at, like saying everything you want to say, because that's one thing that I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose him and then go, shit, I should have said that or I, I wish he had just known, you know, what he meant to me. I got to say all that. And he was still present and able to understand and communicate back. And we held hands and I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it's one of the most beautiful moments I had with my dad. But you were such a big, um, a big influence in that area. And I know that you do a lot of work around this. So can you just sort of talk more around that, um, you know, the death ceremonies or I think you call them ceremonies or parties or whatever you call them. 
but how like that grieving process is so important, isn't it? Especially for people that um, like have terminal, um, have a terminal illness, not just for the person that's got the illness, but for the family members to really start that grieving process early. So can you talk about that rite of passage a little bit more? Sure. Um, the, the thing that taught me the most about um, death was my husband, when he passed, when he had the injury, um, he never spoke again. He never moved again or anything. He had a massive brain injury. Um, but he survived for another two months. So um, in that time, I never got any responses from him. I never got any. But I had that time to go through that grieving process because I knew he was going to die. So they were really upfront about it in, in the beginning. He was never going to die from his injuries. He was going to die from a secondary disease. So um, some lung disease or tummy or something like that. So for him, I knew it was terminal. There was no way back from where he was. So I had that opportunity to have conversations with him, one-sided, and you never know um, in this day and age what people can hear, what they can't hear. Um, so I, they just told me to talk to him like he was there and you were just having a one-sided conversation. And um, this was new to me because I never had a one-sided conversation with him. <laughs> Um, so, and in that moment, his, his parents and I didn't agree on anything. Um, we'd had huge family discussions about organ donation. He was only 24, so he was very young. Um, organ donation, we had a full family discussion. Everyone was there about organ donation. And he had lived a life that was very full. He'd had many, many accidents, push bikes, motorbikes, car accidents. He was a cat, you know. Um, and that last one was, that was his ninth. And it was, he was done. And um, so they arrived and I'd already had an organ donation talk with the counsellor because they have to have it straight away he's, he, because of his brain injury. Um, and I said to them, go and see him and then you'll need to have a discussion with a counsellor. Well, he's not having organ donation. We'd only married six months before him. So it was on me, luckily. But if, if we weren't married, then in, this was a long time ago, but nowadays it's a little bit easier. Um, that would have been an issue. And my, my mother-in-law had both her parent, her mother and her mother-in-law in, aged care homes and she'd visit them and she said that she would take him back there and put him in an aged care home. He hated hospitals. So there's this whole thing going on in the background and eventually I just went, I need to let go with them and visit at different times um, for, for everyone, for everyone's peace of mind. And... Um, the day they brought in the priest overnight, you know, at night, late at night, because they had to return home. And that, that morning, he waited until I got back to the hospital and he passed within half an hour. So some, you know, you don't know what this, what people are, where they're at, even if they're not speaking to you. And this, this also goes for you. Um, with people with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or anything like that or locked in 
locked-in syndrome or anything that they're not conscious, just keep talking to them as if they are. Sound is the last thing that goes in death. Um, so be aware of what you're saying. <laughs> be aware of what you're saying. And who knows what the journey is for that soul. That's, that's what I learned. You don't know what that journey is and who they need to finish their contracts with before they go. So um, I believe that we all have contracts with everyone around us and there's, you know, um, there's these little clauses in there that need to be resolved before they pass. So for me, each person has their own particular journey with that person. And if you've got a terminal illness, you're in bonus time because people can then say what they want to say. You can do what you want to do. But the people that die like that, like my father-in-law, it was horrific because he went from the centre of the family, the most amazing, the strong, the person everybody would go to, to death in two weeks, three weeks. So they all thought that he was going to recover. I knew he wasn't going to recover. Um, but you can't say that. I just said to my husband, you know, say what you need to say, do what you need to do. Your sisters probably don't want to hear this, but I'm helping you. And I actually, I'm normally the doer in the family and I stepped away. I said, honey, you need to step in and be the doer. He said, I don't know what to do. And I said, just be yourself. Just be yourself. Be you. Answer questions when they ask. All that type of thing. And knowing when to step away, I think, is really important. Because a lot of people don't know when to step away. To allow other people to step in. So, um, yeah, terminal illness, it sounds like it's horrific, but it's actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity. That person has an end date. They, they may stretch that end date. They may, you know, that they might bring it forward. Like my father-in-law just went really quickly because I don't think he wanted to put everyone through the, the lengthy experience. He, he, I don't think he, I think he knew that my mother-in-law couldn't cope with the lengthy experience. So, you know, sometimes it's out of your hands and you have to deal with whatever you can right in front of you every moment and Christine you would know that with Alzheimer's you don't know who's going to be there when you turn up for your visit you know he could be there he could be the dad from the past or he could be dad right here and now and um and that and it, people with terminal illnesses that's it's similar you know they could be remembering all the past things trying to resolve all those things before they go, but you're not in that place. You're not in that place. You might be in that, oh, why didn't you do this? <laughs> why didn't you do this earlier? You know, you can't make this better now kind of thing. But they're in that space where they're trying to make up or they're trying to add something to your life before they go. And it's, um, it's a really challenging time. So for me, this is one of my pet passions, is making death an easy conversation all the time, as much as a birth 
or a marriage or a wedding or a whatever. It's one of those conversations to have now while you're fit and healthy and who knows what tomorrow will bring. Who knows what the next hour will bring, you know? So, um, and COVID has really made it in everybody's face. You know, they haven't got any choice. They really have to look at it. So, I, did I cover everything? You, you did. You did. I absolutely love that. And I know that a lot of listeners out there are going through their own, um, their own challenges in regards to this. And it hit me really hard um, last year when one of my good mates who lived on the Gold Coast, um, I knew that he was terminal, but he got told two years and I think he got six months. And um, I went to visit him in the hospital and, you know, got to have a laugh with him and joke around and everything like that. And then I was due to be back on the Gold Coast, um, you know, it, within a couple of days. And I thought, I'll, I'll just, I'll wait till I get there. I, like, I think I went, I went to the Gold Coast and I didn't go and visit him. This is like, you know, about five month mark. I didn't go and visit him because I was like, I'll be back next month. I'll just come back and see him then. But he died two days or three days before I got back. And it absolutely floored me because I was like, oh, I didn't get to tell him. I didn't get to tell him how amazing he was. I didn't get to tell him, you know, that I loved him and, and everything like this. And it just, it just really hit home. And our last guest speaker on the Fearless Mums Club podcast, Claudette Anderson, she said her lesson and what she learned from it is no one ever leaves her presence without feeling loved. Like she, she sees it as her mission now to help people feel the love in the present moment so that she doesn't have these, um, you know, these moments taken away from her where she's living with oh, that person didn't know how I felt. And, and now I feel the same. So I've gone on this, I've become a bit more of a love bug, which is good. And I just now, I really let people know how much I appreciate them, how much they're loved, how worthy they are. And, um, you know, and it's taken relationships to a whole new level. It's taken my relationship with myself to a whole new level. And now I, I say what I want to say to people. And it's so refreshing to know that. And I feel now, Gillian, that if people close to me did pass away, that I would be at peace because I was like, well, they knew that I loved them. I told them all the time and I told them how amazing they were. I told them this is what I was grateful for, you know, and I think more of us need to live in that, in that place, you know, where we're, you know, you can see the plaque behind me, just love. And I think that's what COVID has helped us do as well is just share a shitload more love, compassion, kindness around the world. And I, th I, I feel also on the flip side of that, I think we need to have the conversations that there, sometimes there is no love there, and, but that conversation needs to be had that you haven't dissed this person out of your life and they don't know why. You know, if, you, if there's this person in your life that you need to remove from it because it's not adding value, it's poisoning the well that you, you know, the pond that you live in. Um, but they need to know why. Look, you're out of my life because, and this is the best for me and my family, or this is the best for me to move forward. I can't have you here because that's being honest with that, uh, with that side of you. So then if something does happen, you know, you're not getting those messages. Oh, you were a bitch. 
you know, you were a bitch to such and such. Go, hang on a second. We've resolved that. We, you know, that's a story that's done and dusted. He or she understands why they're not in my life. Because I really feel that in our, in our light, it's easy. But in our dark, it's harder. And they're the things that fester away underneath. And they're the ones that we really need to work on because when, when we let go of those things, we get less disease in our body. We get less stress in our body. There's less of all those things that fester away. And um, the, my, my dad didn't have a very good relationship with all these children. You know, the, there was probably two of us that really had an okay relationship with him because he was unavailable when we were, while we were growing up, even as adults. So he didn't know how to communicate with us as children because he didn't have a good reference point for him at, when he was young. Like his father wasn't in his life at all. And his mother, were, he was away at boarding school and all sorts of stuff. So I understood his story, but that didn't, I do a lot of work. I, lot, I do a lot of me work and I work with people that work on themselves. So I have reference points that I can go there. But three of my siblings don't, you know? And their, their festering energy underneath was really challenging. And my, I remember my brother saying to, about my younger brother, he has to come here. He has to come here and make peace. And I said, he's done all he's going to do. And dad knows that. You know, so what other people's expectations can then fester in that environment as well. It's probably the first time I've shared that out loud. <laughs> so, you know, family dynamics, when death comes knocking, it all the sludge comes to the surface. So I'm just saying dredge your pond early <laughs> so the sludge doesn't come to the, to the surface at the funeral, at the wake and, you know, at the will and all the, all the other stuff that, you know, happens around at that time and at the decision-making for the person that's dying as well. I love that. And it's so true because um, we had the conversations with my dad on how this was going to go down and my brother didn't. So he doesn't see what my mum and I see and how my dad is in his worst nightmare right now, you know, Whereas um, my brother wants to hold on. He, he's holding on with all his might, you know, to this man that um, he's had an interesting relationship with his entire life. Um, whereas mum and I, we're really at peace and we're kind of like, you know, it, 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 it's up to dad now. Like he could go whenever he's, whenever he's ready to go. Like we're, we've done the healing, we've done the grieving, we've had the conversations with him, you know, all those really tough things. And, um, for me, I was one of those people that if mum or dad wanted to talk about their will, like this is going back years and years, they want to talk about their will or their funeral, I'd be like, no, no, don't talk about that, don't be silly. And I'd change the subject because I was so uncomfortable thinking about losing them, you know, that I, I just blocked it off. So we never spoke about it until obviously it landed on our doorstep and now we've got to, the communication has to now start. So I really, yeah, I really want people to, and I'm going to have to watch this over and over again because I can't take notes at the moment. So I'm going to have to come back and take some more notes. This is just gold, what you're giving um, Gillian. I knew, I knew it would be. 
Um, but I've got some friends out there and, and they are there. Um, and, you know, my dad never took care of himself from a, from a nutritional perspective, from a health perspective. You know, he, he, did, he had a lot of stress around finances. He had a job where he had to deal with complaints every day. It wasn't a nice environment. He was undervalued, underappreciated. You know, so all these things compound over time. I never saw him practice self-love, you know. And for me, I've, I've taken lessons out of it. You know, and I think that's another thing. It's another opportunity for us to go, you know what, you know, these people, yes, they've got these terminal illnesses, but what, what can we take? What's the lesson? What can we now go and use? Um, you know, and one of my, um, my brother's best friends um, uh, died in Thailand and he was like a brother to me and it, and it absolutely floored me. But then when I was like, hang on, let's, what's the lesson here and the lesson like just live your life so from that day I was like I'm not taking another day for granted again it took that death of my brother's friend to really shake me up and go life is precious like we have no idea when when our time is up you know so and Jillian what I loved about you the first time I met you was you were doing all these crazy dares like once a month you would just really like challenge yourself to do like you really do live life to the fullest and you know, you walk, you talk, and that's what I love. Do you want to share a couple of the um, the challenges, like just to help you grow? Because I know this is like a self-evolution process, but what are some of the craziest things that you've done on these monthly challenges you've set for yourself? I know shaving your head was one. <laughs> that was the second time. I wanted to get a different, different um, result because the first time I did it, my husband didn't talk to me for two weeks. Even though I told him I was going to do it, he didn't think I would. So, uh, yeah. And that was a reflection of him, actually. It wasn't me, what other people would think about him with a wife that had no hair. And at that time, you know, it wasn't cancer. It was um, gay ladies. They used to call it the dyke haircut. And um, people who went off to India and, you know, eat, pray, love, you know, they shaved their head. I went to the ashram and, and all that type of thing. So the second time I did it when I was 50, so this, this whole challenge thing came up um, because I felt really stuck. Like I really felt stuck in the stuff that my life. And I just went, oh, I've got to keep, I just got to say yes. I'm just going to say yes to everything. Because when you say yes to something, you can say no later. But if you say no, they don't come back and ask you again. <laughs> so I just said yes, 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 yes. And this thing came up on Facebook and this lady needed vagina models. <laughs> That's not something you hear every day, is it? <laughs> she was doing an art project and she wanted to do a whole lot of 100 vaginas. And she was complaining that people would put their hands up and then go, and then not turn up, right? So I just went, oh, I, I can do that. <laughs> and then I went, holy shit, what did I just do? Now I have to turn up because she just complained about people not turning up. <laughs> anyway, I turned up. And you know that dental stuff that, that <laughs> you do? That, that's all she used. And it was just like, she was chatting away. And, you know, it was just like a pat smear, like big deal. <laughs> it was just on the surface too. And she goes, hold on. And uh, it was like 10 minutes. And she goes, here's the 
all the ones that I've already done. And I went, holy shit, look at that. There's not one there that looks the same as the other one. <laughs> you know, it was eye-opening. So everything I've done is really eye-opening for me, <laughs> you know. Um, so then the second challenge was I'm re I really don't like anything near my eyes. I had this real, you know, and people have said, oh, and my optometrist said, we can do laser. And I go, no, 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 no. And not unless you can knock me out, there's no laser going to happen. <laughs> kind of thing so I went and got eyelash extensions now with eyelash, eyelash extensions you'll lie down for an hour and a half at least and they do one eyelash by at a time and I didn't realize they use these really sharp tweezers it's very long very sharp tweezers and she used sable because my eyelashes are really delicate Aaron, I had to hypnotize myself in the first 10 minutes because I was hyperventilating. <laughs> and afterwards, and this is, happens every challenge that I've had, afterwards I started, oh my God, that feels so sensual. It was exhilarating and sensual and delicious. It was just amazing. And the other one is, uh, one other significant one, I would never jump out of a plane. I grew up in the airline industry and aircraft engineers and everything like that. And there's no way I would jump out of a plane. I have a fear of falling. I don't have a fear of heights. I can climb up, but getting down is the issue. <laughs> mm. um, so my girlfriend said, hey, um, I've, I've booked us a ticket for iFly when are you going to Sydney next? And I go, what's iFly? <laughs> and she goes, indoor skydiving. And I'm just like, I, my whole body just went into a cold sweat. <laughs> anyway, I looked it all up and I went, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And my daughter came with us and uh, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's one here in, in um, Surface and highly recommended. So there are a couple of things. I put my hand up for um, Commonwealth Games. All these challenges I do on my own. I never take anyone with me. Another one was to do uh, to talk at three networking meetings a month, and I did that for twelve months as well. So yeah, it's you know, and there was a whole lot of little ones in between, but um, yeah. And I'm back on it. <laughs> My challenge for April was to uh, set up the men's group. So it's done. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I love that. I love that. We're, we're going to talk about the men's um, group in a minute. But just to finish, um, what are three of your best tips, hacks that you've got for other mums out there? What are, what are three things that you're just like, mamas, you need to just, just do this? In, in reality, the most important thing is to be honest with yourself. No faking it till you make it because you just turn into a fake. Um, you just know how to do fake really well. So be honest with, with those things that you don't do well. Learn how to do them well or reach out and get someone to help you. Be, you know, do collaborations with other mums, with other people, with 
people you pay services for. Don't think that you have to be the hero in everything that you do because it's better to be the hero in the things that you do well than do shit job. <laughs> you know, pay someone, do a collaboration, do a buddy, whatever. That, for me, that was the most important thing to learn um, because I wasn't very good at receiving. So I had to teach myself to be able to receive a thank you because that is actually attached to your own self-worth. If you can't receive a thank you, if you if your first thing is to go, oh, don't worry about that, you're just saying to yourself you're not worth it. You're not worth it. And neither is that person who's gone to the trouble of finding something to give thanks from their heart and you're dissing them. You're just going, oh, no, it's, it's okay. It's not okay learn to receive that was one of the other aspects for me so you don't have to be the hero of everything <laughs> learn to receive because that really grows your own self-worth more than anything else and the other aspect is this is the hard one is to remember that your relationship is more important than your children long term so if you don't add value to your relationship on a daily weekly basis if you don't make space for that partner and it doesn't matter if it's your husband or your girlfriend or whatever it is if you don't make space for them once your children are gone you will not have a relationship it will not exist they will go elsewhere because you haven't made space for them in your life in your life together you know if, you, if you're looking for longevity in your relationship then you have to do the work right here and now <gasps> that's a lot to swallow ladies <laughs> it's so true though and um another mentor of mine um said to me he put it another way he said christine um you know often women cheat on their husbands um and it's not like a physical, sexual form of cheating. He said, you, you can often find yourself where you're cheating on your husband with your kids or you're cheating on your husband or your kids with your job, with your work, you know. Um, and this is when I was really like just career focused and driven and wanting that next thing, that next milestone. And I was, I was putting that in front of, you know, my relationship. So that, it was a tough lesson to learn, but you're so right, Gillian. You know, we do have to make space. And as, as crazy as this sounds, I actually have to schedule in time into my diary <laughs> with my husband. But if it gets to that, it gets to that. Well, that, if, that if that works, that works. If you, if you don't, if that's the way you live your life is through schedules, then that's actually how you have to do it. You know, some people put their lunches, their dinners there, whatever, and it happens that they're having lunch with their husband. That's cool. But every day, lunch and their dinner or having their breakfast or going for their activity, exercise or whatever it is that fulfills them, but their relationship also needs to fulfill them as well. And um, a lot of my clients, in you know, 10 years ago were women in their 40s to 60s whose children had now left and they'd put all their energy into their children or they put all their energy into their job and didn't have a relationship at all. They had never made space. You know, if they don't love me for who I am now, then hang on a second. If 
your journey has been like this, how is anyone going to fit in there? This is only made for you. You've actually got to open it up and make space for another person to share. Now, my husband and I don't live like this. We live like this and we meet. So we have very different lives. We have very different belief systems. We vote differently. We <laughs> Everything about us is different. Our spiritual beliefs are different. Um, there's so much difference, but there's so much that we come together, you know, and we meet, we have conversations, we connect. Um, so sometimes we fight and go, yeah, you're, you're rubbish. <laughs> and then go, oh, well, maybe, you know, it, and sometimes it takes time. It takes time for the things to filter in. But we're also okay with our differences. And I think that's important that if you're not okay with those differences, first look at yourself before you look at the other person. Am I okay with me first? And then if you are okay with you, then it may be something that's going on there and you may have to change something. And it's not the necessarily the relationship. I love that. Such wise words. Oh, my God. Microphone dropped right there. Um, <laughs> this has been so amazing, Gillian. Um, even those last three tips that you, you know, that learning to receive, so many women really struggle with that, that I see, that I notice, um, you know, and really loving yourself first and, Oh, there's just so much gold in here. I know the listeners are absolutely going to love it, but where can they find you? If they want to know who is this woman, because a lot of them are only going to hear this. They're not seeing the glorious person that you are right now. It is eventually going to go up on YouTube, but for now they're only going to be hearing this, but where can they, um, where can they find you? They can find me several places. Yeah. LinkedIn. Um, I'm always Julian Madigan. So it's easy enough to find me. Um, Facebook. I run a BEM group. It's called Body, Emotions and Mind. And there we meet every Saturday, have an open discussion via Zoom. Um, this week is about boundaries. <laughs> and uh, as a bonus, that's a huge one. And I also run a men's group. Um, these are community groups. They're, they're just groups for people to come together and have conversations. The men's group um, grew out of a need in the in this time that um, men really don't have conversations not like ladies ladies will reach out and go and find a group or go and find uh go and ring up their mates or whatever guys actually i did a little poll with them and asked them some deep questions about what do they discuss with their mates and what don't they discuss and a lot of it was family and business and money and emotions so um and women do that all the time it's like they're happy to share and exchange you know information whereas guys don't that's on a friday night at five o'clock try not to call it beer o'clock but um it is that time of the the week shit happens men matter is called that's the name of the group um it's only for guys and i really that was my stepping out moment for this month is running a group for guys being a woman but um my clients reassured me that that's actually what needs to happen otherwise men will go back into their old patterns of not talking. <clears throat> um, I also do assessments for um, 
people and their children, how they communicate, what communication style they may have, um, their relationships. So I read faces for that. I read the face and I can tell you what kind of communication style you have, um, what kind of communication style you don't have. <laughs> um, and um, also where, where challenge areas are in your life. So by, by seeing a photo, I don't even need to see you in, in person. Seeing a photo, I can give you quite a few tips. Um, you can make bookings on my Facebook page. Um, Gillian Madigan, uh, Psychosomatic Body Language. I've just changed the name of it, so I've had to think about that. <laughs> Gillian Madigan, Psychosomatic Body Language. I have an Instagram page as well. I do art. There's a whole lot of stuff out there. But you can just Google me. I'm pretty much everywhere, and I'm happy if you send me a message via Messenger or Instagram or LinkedIn or pick up the phone. Amazing. Oh my gosh, this has been so awesome, honey. I knew it would be because you are such an awesome person. Um, but I just really want to take a moment to recognize you and, and for the work that you're doing out there and the way that you show up in the world. It's so inspiring. It's uplifting. You're just one of the most spirited people that I know. You stay true to yourself and you hold yourself in high regard and at a, at a higher level. And that's, that, like I aspire to be like that. And um, I know I'm on my way there, but I draw so much inspiration and empowerment from the way that you live your life. So keep shining bright, my friend. I love you. Thank you for being on here and spending this hour with us. I think we've gone a little bit over time, but that's all good. It's been amazing and absolutely worth every minute. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, darling. I love watching you as well. Oh, thank you. Bye.